used to ride my bike down in the morning to the hospital. Uh, he'd tell me what to do. I would go back and uh, talk to the insurance companies and talk to companies in England about getting new machinery. And um, uh, and uh, and then I'd go back at lunch, have lunch with them, go back to the... And how old were you at this stage? I think I was about 12. So at 12, you were going back and forth between the hospital and the factory, and you were essentially managing this yeah, whole like we, you know, there was there was no phone in the hospital wow. room and you know it was uh yeah, yeah so, he, so he had a huge amount of faith in you at that at 12 years of age so yeah it was a good experience and, you know sort of um probably that had a huge effect on who i am today this is the digital irish podcast a show about irish innovation with entrepreneurs corporate innovators and global leaders This show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, a not-for-profit organisation with the mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and on the first part of the show today, we hear from Harry Mosley, who has been the Chief Information Officer for some of the most respected financial services companies in the world. But now he's in the fast-paced world of tech as the CIO of Zoom Communications, which is widely considered to be the best video conferencing platform on the market. So if you've been on a video call for work in the past two years, there's a high chance that you've used Zoom. And if you haven't used Zoom, in simple terms, it's a video conferencing platform where you can host meetings, presentations or webinars. We actually even use it at our live Digital Irish events when a startup is pitching remotely. They can just call in through Zoom and make their presentation and share their slides with the audience from there. And what makes Zoom so unique compared to the many other products on the market is its simplicity. It was launched in 2011 by Eric Yuan with the mission to make video communications frictionless. And since they launched, Zoom has become hugely popular. They've grown from 30,000 customers in 2014 to over 1 million today. And with all of that growth, Eric Yuan needed to expand his executive team. So in 2017, he reached out to Harry Mosley and asked him to come on board as the company's first chief information officer. But when Eric came calling, Harry had already announced his retirement after a 40-year career where he worked for companies like KPMG, Blackstone, Credit Suisse and UBS. But you see, once Harry got a chance to hear about Zoom's vision for the future, his retirement plans were quickly put on hold and he was back in the hot seat. And as I spoke to Harry, I could really feel his excitement about working for this company. He's definitely a character who thrives in these high-intensity and challenging environments. And as we got into his story, I think a lot of this goes back to his childhood, where he spent a lot of his time outside of school working in his father's bedding manufactory. Harry grew up in Rathfarnham on the south side of Dublin, and we started our conversation by reflecting on how his dad got into the bedding business. So my father... If I remember correctly, my sister will correct me if she ever listens to this and uh, uh, get it wrong. Uh, but you know, he uh, went to med school, uh, and um, he dropped out of med school because he met my mother, and uh, they they wanted to get married, and so that was going to be a long program over here. So he started and he started as a commercial traveler, and then uh, he got some money and started you know, making him and my mother were in Cork. They moved to Dublin, they started making beds by hand. They sold them as second-hand beds from the spare bedroom in the house that they had. And uh, then he got enough money to rent a factory, and then he 
started hiring people and one thing led to another and so that's wow yeah and growing up and amongst that was it exciting to be able to go down to the factory oh yeah it was always good fun yeah and uh you know many many fun memories and uh, and so my first job uh i remember i can't remember how old i was but uh but he used to bring me down to the factory and i would drag a magnet around the factory floor uh, to pick up the nails because bed frames were made by people back then um, and uh, they were wooden and you would, you know they'd have a big big apron with all the sort of four inch nails and they'd take a nail out and they'd put the nail into the bed but nails cost money and so you know occasionally they'd drop a nail drop a few nails but they're not going to bend down and pick it up because why should they they got more nails than the apron or occasionally they you know a nail would bend and then they'd just drop it and so my job was with the magnet to go around and pick up the nails and then to straighten out the bent ones then one night in 1967, his father's business was dealt a crushing blow as the bedding manufactory burnt the ground. Harry was only 12 years of age, but vividly remembers it. And the day after the fire, Harry and his dad walked through what was left of the factory to begin the rebuilding process. My father and I were walking through what was left of the factory the day after, and there was a steel rafter swinging from the top of the building. And uh, so my father wiggled it so to get the metal fatigue in so that it wasn't blowing in the wind because he was worried that it, you know, it, it was going to come down and he was worried it would come down on somebody. Uh, and so the steel girder came down to the ground, it bounced up and his hand went up and then the steel girder came down and sliced off his fingers. Yeah, yeah so that was pretty bad. And you were there to witness all of that? I was like maybe four feet away from him, yeah. It was... It was Pretty awful. And uh, anyway, uh, the good news is that um, you know, uh, fast forward, the fingers got stitched back on and he was all fine. But uh, for a period of time, he was in hospital and I used to ride my bike down in the morning to the hospital. Uh, he'd tell me what to do. I would go back and uh, talk to the insurance companies and talk to companies in England about getting new machinery. And um, uh, and, uh, and then I'd go back at lunch, have lunch with them, go back. To the and how old were you at this stage? I think I was about 12. So at 12, you were going back and forth between the hospital and the factory, and you were essentially managing this whole redevelopment. There was no phone in the hospital wow. room. and you know. We, so he, he had a huge amount of faith in you at that at 12 years of age. Yeah, it was a good experience. And, you know, sort of, um, prob- probably that had a huge effect on who I am today. Yeah, and being that close to the business, it, well, did, did, it, did he bring it back to, yeah, yeah, to operation? yeah. yeah. So before, you know, before the factory sign used to read uh, Jay Mosley, and um, and uh, uh, after a new factory was built, he called it Jay Mosley and Son. I love it. Yeah, so I have pictures of that I can show you. Being that close to it and being that involved, and that viscerally involved in the company at such a young age, did you were there ever any intentions or plans that this was going I, to be your I, role? I think that he probably had intentions for me to sort of come into the business. And did you, did you feel a pull towards it? No. No? <laughs> Not happening. Really? I suppose because when we look back at these things in time, they sound very romantic, right? Because it's that 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 kind of, that story of lineage and time yeah. sounds appealing. But sometimes when you're younger and you're in it, it's it's not that romantic at and the time. You know, I didn't want to stay in Ireland for a variety of reasons. And uh, so after I graduated, I moved to England. Did you, did you always want to kind of go out and explore the world? Sure, what prompted me for a whole variety of different things. At what stage did you have an idea of, or you started to form an idea of what you wanted to do when you were go- going to leave Ireland? 
I think it's, you know, probably in my final year at college when, you know, all the companies are coming through doing their, you know, sort of pitches in terms of their jobs and their company and where they are. And um, I I remember it's like, you know, Schlumberger, as an example, was a really interesting company. I really wanted to go work at Schlumberger, uh, principally because you had, uh, for every day you worked, you got two days off. (laughs) And the, but the place you were working was like in the back and beyond. Uh, there was nothing to do. Oh, where was it? Uh, all sorts of places where they're drilling and mining and what uh-huh, have you. Okay. Um, so there was literally nothing to do. There was no social activities, etc. That's why it's like one day on, two days off, and uh, one, and and you got paid like you know huge sums of money, uh, relatively speaking. And um, so that was very attractive to me, but never it never happened. So. Uh, I, you know, but I wanted to get out and explore the world. I thought that sort of, uh, you know, Ireland's a fantastic country and it was, you know, being very good to me, my family, my friends. Um, but the opportunity to get out and sort of uh, see the world, the world is huge. I mean, yeah, like, it's, uh, I think it's worth considering that Ireland was a very different country at that time as well, right? Yeah. That there's incredible opportunities now for anybody that's in Dublin, but at that time it was probably quite different. You know, at that time you had to get out. Yeah. Uh, there was the big brain drain going on, as you'll remember. Mm. Um, uh, but I think today it's a different world. I think you can stay in Ireland and, and have a fantastic career, uh, whereas in those days, uh, not so much. Yeah. That's the way I would characterize it. And where, where did you go to school, or where did you go to university? Trinity. Trinity. Yeah. And what were you studying while you were there? I did uh, engineering, math, and computer science. Wow, that's quite a combo. Yeah. So only two days after graduating, Harry moved to the UK for a job with the British Steel Corporation where he started as an assistant site engineer. But he didn't love the work and wanted a change. You see, he did have three degrees, essentially. So he traded out engineering for computer science and joined a tech company in London where he would use his skills in coding. And that job would transfer him to New York, where he eventually went out on his own and started his own company, where he built a software for financial firms. So it was uh, building a uh, building software for off balance sheet uh, trading, accounting, risk management. So essentially, futures and options, uh, which were sort of new instruments back then, um, and there wasn't a lot of technology uh, systems back then for handling those instruments. There were essentially two other companies, and so I built a third company to do that. And. Uh, uh, sort of when I when I reflect on the startup back then versus doing a startup today, and uh, I was just talking about it yesterday actually. Um, you know, back then you had uh, I had to buy a mini computer for a hundred thousand dollars, which back in was that one was that a, a, an investment at the beginning? Yeah, that's nineteen eighty one. That's like you know sort of spending a hundred grand to you know back in nineteen eighty one. You know, think about the value of money and what that would be today. On the other hand, uh, today, you know, I, I, I could pull out my Amex card and spin up a bunch of servers at Amazon for a fraction of that. Probably have more cash in my pocket than what, what were you getting for 100 grand at that time? It was a mini computer. But what, 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 could, it, what could it do for you? Uh, well, it was a mini computer, had storage, had memory, had CPU processing capabilities, and uh, you'd have a bunch of dumb terminals that you attached using twisted pair to the machine, and that's, that's what it was. And uh, you had an operating system, and you had uh, programming language, and you'd program it, yeah. Was it just you that went in and started that company, or did you have any partners at the uh, time? I, was, uh, um, I started it, and then I brought in a couple of partners, and um, we hired a bunch of people, and uh, yeah. It was 
And how long did that last from, from when you started? Uh, I, I, I stepped down um, uh, in 1984, and then uh, the other two partners continued with the company. So how long was that from beginning until you, until Three you left? Three years. Three yeah. years. And what was that like as an experience uh, to have gone out? Because you were, you were quite young at that age to have gone and started yeah, a company. I was 26. And it worked out fruitfully. Uh, you know, could have been better. It wasn't, you know, I, I stepped out of it for a variety of personal reasons. But, I, you know, no regrets. And that decision to start his own software company at 26 proved to be extremely valuable because he sold it at 29 and from that sale joined the Swiss investment bank UBS at a very, very pivotal time for the company. So after I joined UBS uh, and UBS grew rather dramatically, when I first walked through their doors at 14 Wall Street, there were like 98 people. Uh, when we were up here at 299 Park, we were more like 5,000 people. Wow. So when I stepped out of my company in 1984, joined UBS, my role changed dramatically. And... Um, uh, over time, and uh, we had more systems, we had more, you know, more complexity in uh, in the systems necessary, from trading floor systems to settlement and clearing. The whole financial services uh, industry uh, became much more sophisticated with things like uh, netting systems for payments, etc. Harry left UBS in 1998 to join Credit Suisse, which is another Swiss investment bank, and he then went on to lead the Blackstone Group for seven years as their CIO. And in his final role before retirement, he joined KPMG, the global accounting and consulting firm. So at this point, after a 40-year career, the man from Rathfarnham who took his first job as an assistant site project engineer for British Steel would go on to have leadership roles at some of the largest financial institutions in the world. But now he had plans of travelling, relearning how to programme, doing philanthropic work, and then Zoom came calling. And can I ask you, what endeared you to Zoom when you chose to make the decision to join it? Because you had, at that point, decided to retire. Yes. And then opted to come out of retirement. Yeah, to... I had a whole plan about what I was going to do with the next chapter and sort of getting a job wasn't part of it. And so, you know, along came Zoom, um, you know, uh, shortly after I announced my retirement and uh, uh, they were looking for a CIO with grey hair, so I clearly qualified <laughs> for that. Uh, you know, sort of someone with a background and... You know, having worked in you know the uh, organize, you know having worked in companies like I have worked in, so they wanted some of that um, experience too. And um, uh, my initial reaction was, you know, sort of very humbling to be quote asked to you know sort of consider the role of CIO at a company like Zoom. And uh, um, as I um, uh, dug into it and understand their you know sort of the technology architecture, the differentiation, and uh, got to know Eric and understood uh, what was different about Zoom to everything else out there, it became really apparent that this was going to be a software company that was dramatically different to everybody else in this space. Uh, that has proven to be, uh, you know, sort of accurate. What, what was what was Eric looking for from you uh, when he came to you to ask you to be the role of the CIO? I think that, um, you know, sort of experience and the knowledge, because, you know, sort of back, so when I joined Zoom as an example, uh, March of 2018, uh, the company was, uh, you know, slightly north of about 800 people. And today we're over 2,000 professionals. So you look at that mega growth. 
you know, we're a very, you know, sort of, uh, it's a, a company where most of the executives were, well, in fact, I'm the only executive that's not located actually in Silicon Valley. It's like, you know, headquarters is in San Jose. I'm here in New York. And uh, so we get a little bit of geographic distribution um, and also more executive presence. It's, you know, sort of when, you know, when I talk to peers in any industry, uh, when they look at my background, uh, it's very different than when you talk to others in, in the company. Tell us a little bit about what the role of the CIO is. Yeah, so it's uh, looking at our internal systems and our internal processes and giving guidance as I see fit on that. Um, but it's also, you know, partnering with uh, my colleagues on the go-to-market side and talking to our CIOs and CTOs and chief digital officers and chief transformation officers, because uh, uh, I, you know, on any given week, I'll talk to 30 or 40 different uh, entities, if you will, corporations, um, uh, US companies, European companies, Asian companies, and, uh, you know, sort of understand what their strategic objectives are around communications and collaboration. And then, you know, I can provide them with sort of thought leadership around what other companies are doing and how they've experienced Zoom. So it's uh, it's uh, from you know it's um, it's good fun. And has it changed a lot? Because you've made this role of the CIO certainly your expertise, right? I think you know. So when you look at sort of uh, other Silicon Valley startups, the CIO is much more externally facing, talking to clients about the technology architecture, the technology um, differentiation. Um, and uh, versus the CTO is sort of more internal about the product. The CIO is more external, talking about the company, being an advocate for the company, being an advocate for the product, talking about why our product is different and how our clients are using it. Was that the case when you when you were at your previous roles in KPMG and UBS and Credit Suisse? No, not so much. I mean, occasionally, you know, sort of in those roles, you would be pulled into clients and um, uh, so, but uh, it was sort of the minority of the time, where here is the majority of the time. So was the major difference being that you've kind of, well, can you, can you actually categorize that? What is the major difference of going from those large established companies to doing it for a tech startup now? Yeah, so, you know, when, uh, you know being CIO of the uh, KPMG US firm, you know, servicing a population of 30,000 plus professionals. So it's running the internal infrastructure, the internal services, the internal projects to support um, the professionals that are serving serving the KPMG clients. Um, so, you know, the way I always characterize it was I was like CEO of a tech company inside of this organization, but I had a monopoly in terms of who my client base was. Mm. Uh, but the client base was set. <laughs> Uh, whereas here, our client base is everywhere. Um, so it's uh, rather different. Do you enjoy it that you kind of get to leave your environment, per oh, se, yeah, and absolutely. then you get to kind of absolutely. take more control uh, of it? Absolutely. This is like real fun. Yeah. 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 And 2019 has been a particularly exciting year for Harry and for Zoom. They went public in April, which is only eight years since the company was launched. And for all the negative press that's currently in the media around tech IPOs, Zoom has actually been a great success story. What was that experience like, being part of a company going public? Uh, it was actually pretty emotional, to be honest. Um, you know, looking at, you know, like Eric Yuan, who's an awesome guy, our CEO and founder, he had an idea, he had a vision. 
uh, started in 2011, didn't know where it was going to go, and here he is eight years later, uh, you know, at NASDAQ in Times Square, and, you know, um, I don't know if, you, if one could say this was a dream come true. Uh, I don't know if this was his dream, but it was, like, pretty awesome. It was, like, yeah, no, it wasn't pretty awesome. It was amazing. Just absolutely to experience it and to see the team experience it. Um, once in a lifetime opportunity, yeah. You speak very highly of him, especially when I've heard you speak of the decision to join Zoom. And anybody else that I've heard talk about Zoom talks extremely highly of him as well and how he's considered as a CEO. Yeah, he's like a real human. He's very nice. He, you know, sort of really... Um, you know, lots of people say they care about their people, care about the team, care about their clients. He means it hmm. beyond any shadow of a doubt. Uh, and um, uh, he's a very humbling person, very and uh, very caring and very thoughtful, and and obviously super smart and um, uh, very driven. And you know, so that sort of. Uh, uh, ekes into the entire company from a culture perspective. 2019 has been a huge year for companies going public. But I, I read an article recently that said that the the profitability of the companies in 2019 is the same as it was prior to the dot-com bubble in 99. But Zoom is one of those great stories that's come out of that because you guys are operating at a profit and you are continuing to grow since you've since you've gone public. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think there's so, so certain financial fundamental principles is like, you know, number one is you got, you know, as a company, you have to generate revenue. Um, you know, if you're operating at a loss, that sort of strikes me as odd. Mm. Um, and uh, you can only sustain that for a certain period of time. Um, and you know, I recognize that, you know, sort of, you know, companies need to invest. You need to, you know, without making an investment, you don't get a return. That's some certain sort of basic fundamental principles of, of, of economics, if you will. Um, uh, but at some point, companies need to realize that they, um, their fundamentals need to change. Giving back is a, is, a, is a very important thing to you, and you are a sponsor of NPower, and you're on the national board of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. What is it that draws you to, to both of those organizations? I think giving back is, you know, sort of, if you've been successful in your career, uh, I think giving back and helping those who are less fortunate is super important. When I think about NPower and, you know, sort of helping young adults and uh, veterans, uh, you know, have a career in technology, um, is uh, what they do is absolutely amazing. Um, uh, and, you um, uh, uh, getting, you know, so not just training them, but then helping them get great opportunities in great firms uh, is uh, it's and seeing these young people, um, these young adults, and seeing how they uh, really appreciate uh, the help. I think that's just sort of uh, it's super important. Um, and uh, and then on the you know the with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. You know, people say, it's like, well, why are you so... I mean, I've been supporting them since almost 20 years. Uh, and why do you do that? It's like, I do it because I can. It's like, I've had no, I'm very fortunate, no cancer in my family. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, it's easy to write a check. Um, but, you know, when you make a commitment of time 
and a commitment of effort that's radically different than writing a check and your ability to have uh, impact on a sort of a large uh, organization like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and the patients that they serve um, is, uh, it's very rewarding. Do you have any advice or anything, any words of wisdom that you would be able to give to any Irish entrepreneurs, founders or people involved in the, the tech industry that are either operating in Ireland or globally and are looking to expand? I think it's sort of, um, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, the, the short answer is yes. <laughs> uh, but I think that it's not just applicable to a company coming out of Ireland. Um, I think, you know, sort of uh, latching onto your network is super important. If you don't have a good network, really very hard. So I think network is really important, sort of relationships are super important. And so, you know, looking at your alumni network is like, you know, very critical. So I think that's sort of one piece of advice, look at the network. Uh, two is uh, go fast, uh, go, you know, sort of um, uh, constantly look for ways of how, you know, sort of what's, what's the objective that I'm trying to reach and how can I get there quickly. And um, and then the third is, yes, you know, so the startups kind of have a board. Absolutely. Board is intellectually interesting, but surround yourself with like a personal board. I think, you know, as an innovator, as a leader, having that personal board beyond just the board of the company who, you know, the set of people that you can reach out to and tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, Patrick, it's like I'm thinking about this. What do you think? Sort of. Make, make that a part of it too, more like a, uh, having like a set of advisors who you can tap uh, where they've had different backgrounds, different experiences, because as a, as an, uh, I mean, I remember when, when uh, I was that early entrepreneur back in 1981, it's like I didn't have that. And uh, so you were kind of alone. And uh, I remember when I started the company, everybody said, oh, it's great. It's kind of like, you know, you're the CEO of the company and it's kind of like, you know, no one tells you what to do. That is so wrong. You have clients, they tell you what to do. You've got employees, they tell you what to do. You've got competition, they they don't tell you what to do, but they will they, they force you to do different things. You've got banks, you've got all sorts of... Uh, so you need to surround yourself with a set of people that you can tap on the shoulder and say, hey, I've got this situation, what do I do? Super. That's incredibly valuable. Thank you. And I've got a quick fire round of questions um, that I'm just looking for a short response on. I'll try. <laughs> Let's see how we do. Uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Wow. Never thought about what profession other than my own would I like to attempt? Mm. Shouldn't be that hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're obviously in a good position if you don't have a lot of things that are hanging in the balance. I think, you know, sort of when I look at my hobbies as an example, it's like I, I like bike riding, I like cooking, and I like gardening. I think landscaping is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think cooking is awesome. It's, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, I think you know, they're very, uh, in my mind, they're very creative. And uh, so, but, cook, you know, doing dinner parties is fun because you sort of like think about what you're going to cook and you I have a, a whole variety of, nice cookbooks at home and it's like it's very nice to sit down and browse through these and come up with the recipes of what I'm going to make for the dinner and then you go out and you buy the ingredients and then you cook and I, you know, I put on some good music open some nice wine and 
so by the time uh, dinner gets served, I'm already in a great place. So it's, it's a good like, environment. And it's like, you know, it's, uh, and it's so dramatically different to what I do from a professional perspective. It sort of really zones me out. It's not, and, you know, that's why I like gardening, because um, it's nice to sort of sit there in the deck, sit in the garden and watch the, you know, sort of see the flowers blossom. I know that sounds very weird, but it's, uh, but it's like, it's very, it's, it's uh, very humbling. Um, and that's why another, you know, that's why I like bike riding is because it's sort of, otherwise I'll be on this, I'll be working and uh, so, so they disconnect. And I think it's super important to take time to think. Uh, we're always going 100 miles an hour, constantly getting sort of stuff thrown at us, uh, constantly challenges and things to do. I think it's important that people have downtime. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank you. Downtime, disconnected downtime. Another question I have for you is, what's your favorite word? Uh, fantastic. And to couple that, what's your least favorite word? All sorts of bad words come to mind. I think probably uh, uh, being critical. I think there's a whole bunch of words people should never use. The I word, the but word, the, you know, sort of the however word, because they're all negative words and they're very egotistical. Uh, and, you know, when I'm writing, you know, sort of emails, if you will, or messages, I uh, try to avoid using those words for that reason. Yeah. Okay, for the sake of time, I'm going to... This one is going to be um, just... I just want to hear the first thing that comes to mind when I say this word. God, okay, it's like a psychological exam. <laughs> Go ahead. Irish. Beer. Tesla. Awesome. 5G. Uh, we'll, we'll change the world we live in in ways that we haven't even begun to imagine. And globalization. Lots of challenges still. Amazing. And the last question I want to ask you, and I know we've, we've kind of gone back a couple of times in this interview, but uh, just I'm, I'm just interested by this. Um, if you could go back in time and share one message with yourself when you had just graduated college, what would it be? Uh, well, given the years of experience, I would say it's like, uh, think about the unintended consequences. That's Harry Mosley, the CIO of Zoom Communications. And as always, we will hear from the founders of two Irish startups about what they're building and how we as a global business community can support them. Both of today's guests have amazing stories of how they got the idea to start their businesses and then how they both went and pivoted because they saw better opportunities in the market. Right now, we are living in the age of data. Its input is driving rapid changes across all industries. But the one I want to focus on in this episode is retail. You see, e-commerce and online shopping has so much consumer data and can so easily target their audience through digital marketing. And there's an argument that the only way for retail to hold its value is to provide experience. Because as well as living in the age of data, we are also living in the experience economy. But now retail is using data to drive consumers' decisions. And a key data point for any business is choosing the right location. Lucinda Kelly, the CEO and founder of Poperty, a Dublin and London-based startup, now helps brands find the best location to reach their customers. But Poperty didn't start out this way. Originally, they connected brands with locations for pop-up spaces. And this original idea came to Lucinda while she was working in the corporate office of Paddy Power in Dublin. And she was noticing how effective their experiential marketing campaigns were. We were doing a lot of experiential marketing, were a lot of stunts um, to get attention. And looking at marketing spend, as an example, more marketing spend than any other sector was being brought to experiential marketing, which is 
uh, real world experiences because what brands were copying on to us that by creating experiences you drive loyalty and this was kind of stewing in my mind and it was stewing in my mind that retail um, vacancy rates were increasing um, that shopping centres were struggling with um, with brands coming into them. At a similar time, Lucinda was interviewing for a role at Airbnb. I interviewed for country manager for Airbnb and got down to the last few but didn't get the role. But as part of my research and as an early user of Airbnb, this is 2015 by the way, I really liked the shared economy model and thought this could be utilised into another application or for a different use case. And my family background is retail. And that's how property was born as Airbnb for pop-ups. So a marketplace like Airbnb, listing retail spaces that are available short term and letting brands and agencies uh, book them online. So now she was pretty certain that she wanted to make a business out of this idea. And she decided to apply to join NDRC Launchpad, which is an accelerator that supports digital startups. But it wasn't that easy for Lucinda, because just as she decided to start working on the business, her dad got sick. So before the accelerator, which is the end of 2015, I was coming up with the idea. And then actually my dad had a brain hemorrhage and it was the week before I was meant to start with NDRC Launchpad. But that actually drove me even more. It just made me so determined to make this work. So every morning for three months, I remember going into Beaumont Hospital and then I'd go. I applied for NDRC Launchpad, I applied for AIB Startup Academy and Enterprise Ireland have something called New Frontiers. And I got the three of them. Obviously, I was able to blag my way onto the three of them. So that was a really busy time between dad being sick and just doing all of them together. And because for me, it was all, all or nothing and there was no way I was going to fail. And people were like, you know, this is really risky. You're just packing in a big job. And But I was so determined to learn so much about the startup ecosystem and put myself into everything. So that was, yeah, day one was really in NDRC in Dublin. And that's a three-month programme. And that's where it was me, myself and I. I think I had a pretend CTO or someone that might have come for the pitches. But it was really just me um, and a couple of interns then. And that's, that's how it grew and started. And then Lucinda had a chicken versus the egg kind of challenge on her hands. Because she was looking for spaces to rent out to brands, but also had to get brands that needed spaces. So I had a goal within 30 days to get 100 spaces on my website, which was a WordPress website. And that was me picking up the phone and knocking on doors. Um, and some of the early properties were around Dublin, vacant spaces. I made up stats to go, you can make four times the amount of money on short term versus long term. Totally making it up. But we got enough properties on the website. One of our first bookings was House of Peroni, which was like a car park space. So that's a, you know, again, fake it before you make it. It's like you get an inquiry from a marketing agency and they're like, do you have this space? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And then behind the scenes, you're phoning to try and get the space. So that there was a lot of that. Um, and then, yeah, we, we just continued to, to put on more properties and then start to get marketing agencies and brands uh, doing bookings. But I was very clear on uh, my objectives, the goals, what I wanted to achieve and, you know, targets, volumes of bookings, values of bookings. But you're from the blank page, you're making this all up. You're making assumptions. My assumptions were completely wrong because I had modelled it like an Airbnb. 
but it's not. It was actually higher value bookings with less bookings. So any of the early forecasts were completely and utterly wrong. So yeah, your the early bookings were sort of on average, you know, a two week booking. Um, they're booking a space maybe for five thousand pounds or five thousand euros. So it was Dublin per week, uh, so maybe ten thousand. And I started off ten percent commission, five percent on brand side, five percent on landlord. Now we're at twenty percent because we realised that was too small. But you're, 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 you're just you know you're pre-seed. You're trying to figure it out and try and make a little bit of money along the way. But as Lucinda looked at the market and saw some of her competitors who had folded, she started to rethink property's approach and where they really offered value. Looking at the competitive landscape, I there was a company I won't say its name. It had raised ten million out at, at Valley and backed by Big VC. 10 million seed and they folded March that year and they were founded two years before I think and I was like shit that's not a good signal um, and that's where we started to look at well, what sort of data do these do these marketers or retailers want and particularly the digital native brands or the the people your age who have digital first, um, they're, they're used to amazing analytics in the online world. But when it comes to offline, there's lack of data for, for planning the right location um, and measuring what's happening. And this application of property was still very much at this point on pop-ups or events or physical location. And that, that's when we pivoted. And by making that pivot, property is now able to bring amazing value to both brands and retailers that want to be in the right location to reach their audience. So what we were able to show was that you can use data to show where audiences are based in the physical world. And actually, similar to online, where, you know, if I develop um, an ad targeting males 18 to 21 who are into Premier League and have iPhones, it's very clear where you want to serve that ad in the the digital network or in your programmatic platform. But actually, what was happening in the physical world was that brands were still picking their typical Soho area or the areas where there's high footfall. But when you actually look at ROI, that's very similar to back 20 years ago when you'd serve your ads on on the busiest website in the country because it's eyeballs, but now it's about target advertising. So that's where we pivoted and we're like, okay, this data actually enables you to choose the right location based on your target audience. And that's the philosophy of, of what we're doing today. Property also received investment from Telefonica, which is one of the largest mobile network providers in the world. And they're using some of their data to strengthen Poppery's offering, which is now focusing on data and long-term retail. So we have been running pilots since the beginning of the year, and we've just started commercialising them, which is great. And really, um, yeah, that's the focus is the UK market with the Telefonica data. Telefonica invested in us in 2018. Um, and we, the backbone of the data is Telefonica. We use other data sources to get granularity down to 50 metre radius for every physical space in the UK. So we can return to you as a user insights on a location within one minute. Property are also looking to expand out into other European countries and the US market. So the next six months for property are going to be focused on UK go-to-market and actually really commercialising the data. Um, And our plan post six months is to actually raise again, um, to actually build out the team. Um, Our next market will be Spain, followed probably by New York. And for our listeners who may be able to support Lucinda and the team at Property. My ask for the digital Irish community would be 
if there is somebody out there that would be interested in a strategic angel type investment that has a particular interest in retail tech or prop tech, um, we have a great team. We're still a small team um, and we have a small advisory board, but we're really trying to bring one or two strategic angel types into the mix and help us with our thinking because there's a lot there and it's just um it would be great if there might be someone interested and if you want to get in touch with lucinda or learn more about property you can visit property.ai um and i am on linkedin lucinda kelly that's the best way to get us that was lucinda kelly from property who had a chance to meet when she was in new york back in october and we have one more startup for you on this episode And this is an extremely interesting company that I must say completely took me by surprise. So I have to be honest with you, I had a lot of assumptions about the next startup before I sat down with its founder. When I looked up Automation Finance, which is the company we're about to hear from, and saw that they worked in distressed residential mortgages, I thought, well, there's an industry I know very little about. And from what I do know, it's a pretty tough one to talk about because you're dealing with things like foreclosures and probably having to kick people out of their homes. But what made me really curious about this company was about its founder, Paul Burkett, who had worked at PepsiCo for nearly 20 years before starting this business. Because it had me thinking, how did this guy go from selling coconut water to selling debt? And why? Well, it all turned out to be a really, really interesting story And I realized that I had the wrong impression entirely about how this industry works. Because in fact, what they want is to keep people in their homes, not to kick them out. And for us to find out how Paul Burkett got into this business, we have to go back to a 2010 work trip that he was on with PepsiCo. So I I was down in Marco Island, which is an executive resort type of place, retired wealthy people, um, a big hotel and PepsiCo people. This would have been 2010 and we were planning for 2011. And uh, at the end of the meeting on the Friday evening, everyone was rushing to the airport to fly back to New York or the various different uh, regional headquarters. And I was standing at reception checking out and there was a nice uh, magazine on the desk, glossy magazine, and it said things to do in Marco Island. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just stay here, rent a car, drive around. This is a nice area. And in the back page of the magazine was an ad for a local real, real estate broker. But I thought I have nothing else to do. I'll go and check out a few of these houses. And I was looking at this and going, well, this house, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, attached garage, looks like a decent area. Um, rent $1,800 a month, purchase price $80,000. So I called up the real estate broker and went and met this lady. And she drove me around 15 houses that day. And I just couldn't believe it. Firstly, there were so many that were empty because people were being foreclosed on and they were losing the house. So I started buying them for, let's say, $80,000. I bought the first one, I think it was $80,000. And it rented in a week. Um, for $1,700. And the reason it rented so quickly was because in the US, when there's a foreclosure, the person is, is rendered, rendered homeless. So they, they can't afford to buy another house. So they needed a rental property. And at that time, there was lots of empty homes, but they were owned by the banks and very little rental inventory. So anything I bought and fixed up a little bit was renting very quickly. After the success of that purchase, Paul moved quickly and started buying more and more properties. By the end of the first month, I think I'd bought two 
And by the end of the second month, I'd bought five. And by the end of the third month, I'd bought seven or eight. So every Friday after work, I would go to JFK, get on a plane and fly to either Florida or Phoenix, because they were the two places that were really hit very, very hard by the, by the recession. And America is, uh, is like a forest fire type of economy. If something goes bad, it burns really through it very fast, but it get ba- gets back to growth pretty quickly too. And so there were just rows and rows of houses that were being foreclosed. The issue of course is as you scale a business like that, when you're not the guy, you're the one in New York and there's some other guy or guys in this case, your property managers, you add a lot of cost and a lot of complexity. And at 30 houses, I think I got up to about 40 in total. It's very hard to manage 40 individual pieces of property when you don't have a team on the ground. And at 40, you don't have enough units to have a full-time team. So you're kind of neither one thing nor the other. So I knew it wouldn't scale any further. So it made sense to just sell them and find something else. So I started selling them. And the last house I bought was a short sale. So that's where the bank selling the loan, selling the house rather, it's selling the house for less than the borrower owes the bank. So the bank's taking a loss knowingly. But I was buying one of these houses and I remember it was in Philadelphia and um, the bank called me and said, um, we can't sell you that house, we've sold the mortgage on it. So I was buying it from the bank because the mortgage was in arrears. At this time, I didn't know anything about this business. This is 2013, I think, yeah, 2013. And they said they'd sold the mortgage. I thought, oh, who did you sell it to? Did you sell it to Bank of America or you know some other bank? Because in Europe, and certainly in Ireland, what we're used to is you get a mortgage from a bank. You don't get a mortgage from some non-bank. And they said, no, we sold it to some guy. And the nerdiness kicked in. I thought, well, who's the guy? And how can a guy buy a mortgage? And so could a long story short, I ended up meeting the guy and he explained to me what it was that he did. And I, my jaw was on the floor because I just couldn't believe that, in effect, what he was doing was running a mortgage company from his front room. And this really interested Paul because it was a business that could scale. He didn't have to deal with the limitations of managing properties. Now he would just simply buy the loan and make sure he was getting paid on it. So he decided to put up $40,000 of his own money, got a few people involved, and then they pooled all their money together to make their first investment. So we bought 10 loans and a week after we closed the deal, wired the money to the fella, got the loans. And I'd never even seen a loan. I'm going through this going here and after the first party. Here and after, I'm going, oh, oh, it was so confusing. Um, a guy called up and said, hey, I want to pay my loan off. And he owed like 50 grand and we bought the loan for 20 grand. It was like, this, I'm a genius, I thought. I, f- I found my calling. Buy all the loans. All you need to do is have a phone and the guy phones you. Um, and the second one went well and the third one went, went well. But then the remaining six didn't go as well because then a guy sues you. So we ended up buying all the books that you can buy on real estate, understanding property title, understanding a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily know just because you were generally educated. At this stage, Paul needed to start getting outside investment to create a fund. So he started cold calling people who might be a fit. And when he would get through to them, he would cut right to the chase and ask, do you sell loans? It was tough work and there was loads of rejection. 
But then there was this one guy who we got through to who seemed pretty interested. And the guy I spoke to said, we, we do, uh, when I'm in New York, I might meet you for a cup of coffee. Eight months later, he calls me, meets me for a cup of coffee. And I sat eight feet away from him because the opposing seats are very far apart at the, in the Acela Lounge in, uh, in uh, Penn Station. And at the end of that, he said, yeah, I think you know what you're doing. We're looking for someone like you to help us. And within a year, I had about 17 or $18 million of loans purchased with funding from, from our first uh, major kind of investor. Only in America, right? That just doesn't happen, but only in America. And when you see the boxes starting to arrive, you, you really understand the magnitude of what you've done because there's about 50 loans in each box. <laughs> so it's a lot of boxes. Um, and uh, I was running the business from my apartment, which also created somewhat of a storage problem because there was nowhere to move. There was literally boxes every single square inch of, of the apartment. So for those for that period, I think in 2000, late, late 17, we moved to an office. But up until that point, every morning at 8 a.m. or 8.30 a.m., seven people would come to my apartment. We would take off our shoes. And if you picture a New York apartment, you know, 750 square feet, we've got Ikea desks and daisy-chained um, extension leads because everyone needed two computer screens and a laptop and a printer and all that. So I remember one of the guys, he's still with us, came in for an interview and he said, uh, where, will, where will I sit? And I said, sit over on the bed. So you're interviewing a guy who's coming from an investment fund, looking for an entrepreneurial opportunity. And you can picture the look of horror. I went into some guy's apartment and he made me sit on the bed and interview me. And as this scrappy startup continued to grow, Paul and his team had to start building systems to manage the large number of loans that they were now handling. So the struggle then from about 15 to 16 and 17 was, was building the team and getting the people together and getting the systems together so that you can manage what is basically a bank book, um, but do it in a way that is highly entrepreneurial, very systematic, and that you can, you can get these loans and convert them from a non-performing asset, which is a cash drain every month because there's no money coming in on that loan, to an asset where the borrower is paying you every month. And it goes from being a real drag to being a thing of beauty because you're not doing maintenance on the house. You're not doing anything to the house. You're just collecting a payment. And so that's what really attracted me to the scalability um, part of it. And as Paul was explaining this whole business to me, I couldn't help but think, why aren't the banks just doing this? At the end of the day, they're the ones that provide the loans. And why would they sell these loans to companies like Automation Finance at a discount when they could just renegotiate the terms themselves and get the full amount that they're owed? And so the banks have two big problems. The first problem is this. If you go to Chase Bank, the second biggest mortgage uh, originator in the United States, and say, Chase, can I have a mortgage, please? And they say yes. And they lend you 100 grand to buy your house. Um, but you get laid off or your wife gets sick and can't work um, and you fall behind on your payments. Each month you're paying $1,000, but you're supposed to be paying $1,500 or you're not paying anything because it's been a really bad few months and you fall behind. Now Chase wants 10 months of missed payments. So they want 15 grand from you, but you don't have 15 grand. You're in a bind because Chase is in a bind. Because if Chase say to you, 
look, I'll work with you. Don't worry, it's fine. Pay me when you get the chance. The problem there is you'll go down to the bowling club or to the church or whatever and chat with your buddies and say to them, here, <laughs> you'll never guess what happened. Remember I was sick and I didn't make the payments. Chase let me off or Chase said they'd work with me or whatever. Then their whole book stops paying. So they've now got contagion through their whole book. So they've got two choices. One, they can sue you through a process called foreclosure and take your house and sell the house to repay the debt. That's one thing they can do. But they don't like doing that because that's not very good for the brand. It's a headline risk is what they call it. The other thing they can do is they can sell that loan to someone who specializes in non-performing loans. And when I buy that loan, I can call the borrower and say, listen, I know you're 15 grand in arrears. Do you have the 15 grand? The borrower says, no, I don't. But maybe they've one grand or two grand or three grand. Well, I'll write off the other 13 grand because I'm not Chase. No one knows who we are. No one knows that their mortgage is with us. So there's no risk of it contagion, contagion through the rest of the book. So that gives us a, a, an advantage to do something that they can't do. And that advantage to renegotiate is at the heart of how this business works. The way the business works is very simple. We talk to the borrower. We get the borrower to either accept that they want to stay in the home and pay, make a payment, or not, and we'll sell the house and we'll take the money and pay them some money to move out or to rent a place. And the rest of the funds go to the investor. So it's like buying rental houses, except you can't buy rental houses for 60 cents on the dollar. You've got to pay 100 cents on the dollar. So right now, Automation Finance has $200 million worth of loans under its management. But Paul's got his sights on building this into a much, much larger fund by the end of next year. I mean, we're... we're 200 million probably sounds like a lot of money, but we're so tiny relative to the to the industry. And that's about 2,000 loans. And we want to get to a billion dollars by the end of next year. So so that's quite a lot of that's quite a lot of growth. And so I'm out now um, selling to in investors, raising capital from institutional investors and also this crowdfunding um, uh, platform that we've just started, which means that Anyone with $250 can invest directly in the fund without any fees and get the same 8% that an institutional investor will get. So we've gone from uh, about 10 people two years ago to 36 people today. Um, and now really senior people, we just hired someone from Goldman Sachs to come and help us with that, with that growth. So it's going from the scrappy startup to maybe a a small and medium-sized enterprise to a medium-sized, maybe. I don't know what, what the what the breakpoints are there, but just trying to scale up a bit more because we think we have a unique offering in the marketplace and I think our returns kind of demonstrate that. We've returned uh, mid-teens, 16, 17, 18% on, uh, per year on, uh, on everything that we've done since 2014. So that's, compared to the industry, that would be in the top, quartile of, of all, the, all the funds. So it all sounds pretty attractive. But the goal for Paul is growth and getting investment. So when I asked Paul if he had an ask for the digital Irish community, the first thing he pointed out was how instrumental being Irish and being in the US was to the rapid success of automation finance. Yeah, one of the great things about being Irish, I think in general in the US, is it's a, uh, an unfair advantage. Um, and that's not just because the Irish are so fantastic at helping each other, but also uh, the Irish community 
is loved in America in a way that I never appreciated until I came and like really worked here. And people would really go, they cross the street to help you, which is, which is extraordinary. Um, and it, I don't think we could have done what we did in any other country or in any other city at the speed of growth and just, I, I am, it boggles the mind how much we've done in such a relatively short period of time coming from outside the industry with essentially no money. All the money was third party, my money, but most of it was third party. Um, and so the, I guess there's two asks for the, for the, the community. There's, you probably have listeners who are retired bankers, who are people in the investment community. We need to find um, streams of investment cash. So we're always looking for investors. We're always looking for inventory, which means there's banks out there with loans on their books that they don't want. And getting on the list is a constant, not battle, but it's a constant challenge because it's not like you can go to the, uh, some investment conference and find these loans to buy. You have to you know, shoe leather is the way you get these loans. And we're, all, we're always looking for investors. So there's, the fund is open right now and will be open until the end of this year. And, or if we get $50 million first, but um, that's going to be $50 million a year for investors who want 8% a year uh, return. So any of those, any and all of those would be, uh, would be a great help. And if you want to get in touch with Paul, you can visit automationfinance.com and reach out to him through the chat feature on its website. That was another incredible selection of Irish people making an impact on the global stage. And I want to say thank you to all of today's guests, Harry, Lucinda and Paul for sharing their stories. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Digital Irish Podcast. You can catch more episodes with Irish innovators around the world by subscribing to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as well as all other major podcasting platforms. And if you have a business and would like to be featured on the show or have suggestions of guests that you would like to hear, please email us. You can reach us at hello at digitalirish.com. And you can also find out more information on this network through our website, digitalirish.com, or you can connect with us on social media with the hashtag digitalirish. Thank you to Kieran Kay and Matt Stewart at Full English Post for producing this episode. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast.